twice in the Old Testament. The Bible says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It says that in Psalm 111, verse 10, and Proverbs chapter 9, verse 10. And once it says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Proverbs chapter 1, verse 7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning. Now, for many of us, as New Testament Christians, this feels inappropriate to say the fear of the Lord is the beginning. Because we know of God's grace and His love and His blessings. And that seems incongruous to think that the first thing to know is the fear of God. And we like to redefine that word to say, when it says fear, now it it just means admire or worship or praise. But we need to make sure that we we are not being like a, a spoiled heir or spoiled heiress whose father worked hard diligently from the time he had nothing all the way up the ladder to where he built this vast empire and he's got money now and he can take care of his kids and the kids are spoiled. And act like this just happens and this is just what's owed to me and what I deserve and become ungrateful and not recognizing what their father had to go through in order to provide that for them. Even we who have nothing despise that because we're the ones having to actually go through it sometimes. Well, let's apply that to ourselves. We mustn't be enjoying the grace of the Lord without any appreciation of the wrath of God and the justice of God that had to be appeased in order to provide that grace. The grace of God means nothing if you don't understand the fear of the Lord. In chapter 3, verse 21, Paul is going to begin to outline the grace of God. And it's all about grace from there to the end. But we've spent some considerable time in chapters 1, 2, and now 3 talking about sin and wrath and judgment. And it hasn't been very much fun for me especially. I was telling Bill and Peggy last week that Yes, y'all listen to this one hour a week, but I'm spending, you know, 20, 25 hours every week thinking about wrath and judgment and justice and the end of the world and sin. It's not pleasant. I told Catelyn last night, I said, I don't want to teach another, another message on judgment. I want to start talking about grace and blessing and prayer and the Holy Spirit. But we need to recognize, why does Paul take all this time to do this? Because the grace of God will not mean anything to you if you've not first understood the wrath of God. If you don't know that you're guilty, what do you care if you're pardoned? You get a letter in the mail that says, you've been forgiven. Yo, I didn't do anything. Oh, yes, we did. Paul knows he's got to begin here first. Yes, the character of God is an encouragement to us. We remember God's character, his nature, his deeds, and they're... It's a sigh. It's a relief for us. But God's character is also a point of fear because we are insufficient before him. There will be no excuses on judgment day. When you stand before God and he asks you why you lived the way you did and you say, well, Lord, you're nice. Don't you know you're good? You're not, you, you wouldn't do anything to me. We must fear the Lord. It's the beginning of wisdom and knowledge. And specifically, as Paul applies it in this chapter, despite God's promises to Israel, he's not only going to judge them, he must judge them. And the same is true for you and me. The Lord loves us, yes, but he must execute judgment if he is to be a good God. So let's read the first four verses, and then we'll back up and go through this. But that's the the point today, is that we start 
with the fear of the Lord in order to properly understand the grace of the Lord. Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. And we'll pause right there on that by no means. We've got to back up and understand the context for this to make any sense to us. Paul has spent chapter 1 outlining that everybody in the world suppresses the truth of God and is therefore guilty before God because of their unrighteousness. And then in chapter 2, he turns and points his fingers at the Jews, the nation of Israel. And he says, and don't y'all think you don't count for that. They were thinking, oh yes, Paul, you get those Gentiles. Paul goes, no, 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 it's you too. And he went on to explain that a law-breaking Jew is worse off than a righteous Gentile who is uncircumcised. And we discussed how much of that must be understood in context. It's all going to come together next week. But that would have been radical to hear. And it would have been insensitive for Paul, first of all, but also inaccurate for Paul to say that the Jews have no advantage whatsoever, which is why he takes the time. You can almost say that these verses are a slight detour for Paul to make sure he says what he's not saying. This is sometimes preachers have to do this when you're speaking strongly. Every now and then I got to come in and say, now I'm not saying this because people will try to twist those things, as Paul will say at the end. And what he's not saying is that there is no value in circumcision or no advantage to being a Jew. Much in every way, he says in verse 2. It's important for us to know. And what's the first advantage he gives, really the only example he gives here, is that they were entrusted with the oracles of God. So that's an advantage right there. You've got scripture. You've got the Bible. You've got the Old Testament. So that's a huge advantage over somebody that's been praying to rocks up in Scotland or something like that. Psalm 147, verses 19 through 20 says, The Lord declares his word to Jacob, his statutes and rules to Israel. He has not dealt thus with any other nation. They do not know his rules. Praise the Lord. If we're going to be judged by the word of God and what God has said is right, it's helpful to know what God has said is right. Would you not agree? So he wants to come out and say, knowing the story of God's salvation, knowing the moral rules that God has laid down, knowing his promises, these are invaluable. Even today, knowing the scripture is an incredible advantage for life. If you've got it but don't read it, you are missing out. Knowing the scripture is an advantage. Not only that, though, not only is it just, oh, we've got the Bible and that helps us. There's also the whole covenant that Paul is referring to. What is the value of circumcision? Let's remember where circumcision came from. Genesis chapter 17, God established his covenant with Abraham. And you remember the story. This is when God put Abraham into a deep sleep and he built the altars on either side and the fire passed between the two sacrifices. And you can read this passage on your own. We studied it ourselves not too long ago, but The covenant that God gives is, I will be your God and you will be my people. That's our relationship. You will worship me as God and I will treat you like my people. And there's three blessings that he outlines 
for the descendants of Abraham, which then passed on to Isaac and then to Jacob, whose name was changed to Israel. So the Jews, as we understand it. Number one, descendants. He said, I will multiply your offspring on the earth like the stars of the heaven, like the sand on the seashore. That was the first blessing. Number two is land. I will give to you this land, the land of Canaan, the promised land that Moses talked about. That was the second part. And number three, I will bless you. Prosperity. Not only are there going to be a lot of you, not only are you going to have your own land, but I'm going to bless you in that land if you will serve me and keep my covenant. And later on, this is reaffirmed to Isaac. It's reaffirmed to Jacob. It's reaffirmed through Moses in Exodus. And then again in Deuteronomy, right before they go into the promised land, Joshua constantly reminded them of it. The prophets are always calling them back to the covenant. So, if you're wondering, is there any advantage to being a Jew? Uh, yes, there absolutely is. And circumcision, according to Genesis 17, was the sign of that covenant. And Paul has to say this because he just spent the whole last chapter saying, don't think that being just Jewish or being circumcised is enough to save you. He's not saying that these promises that God made to Abraham and others have been abrogated. In fact, verse 4, he says, by no means. This is one of my favorite phrases in the New Testament. This is megenoita in Greek. And it's translated in the ESV, by no means. The New American Standard has it literally. So literally, what does it mean? May it never be. The old King James has, a, has actually a rather dynamic translation there. God forbid. They're trying to get the, the sense across. And then you've got the GTW translation. That's the Guy Tyler Warner translation, which is me. What are you, nuts? That's the sense of this. Megenoita. Of course not. So are you saying, Paul, that there's no advantage to being a Jew and, and that God is done with Israel? He goes, what are you, nuts? Don't you know your Bible? Don't you know your Old Testament? We're going to see this phrase nine times in the book of Romans. They're actually going to see it again one more time this morning. But Paul always says this after outlining a false conclusion from his teaching. So, so what you're saying is, you ever see that on TV where the politician says something or the artist or the writer says something and then the person interviewing says, so what you're saying is, and then they get some weird thing and it's like, you know, maybe they should respond with that right there. No. Where did you get that from what I just said? So, Megenoita, by no means. There are many who believe that Israel has been replaced by the church. I saw a few commentators in this passage trying to say how this is actually saying that, that God's done with Israel as a nation. I don't know how you arrive at that conclusion. Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. That is unbiblical. First of all, you got the whole Old Testament, which never even hints that that is about to happen. Jesus spends the whole time speaking to who? Israel. The book of Acts is mostly to the Jews. And then when it goes to the Gentiles, they have to have a whole big meeting about this. Like, are we even going to let them in here? And the answer, of course, is yes. But even so, we're following the Jewish apostles as they take the mission to the Gentiles. And then the rest of the New Testament, it's remarkable, even books like James and Peter, it says, written to who? The 12 tribes of the diaspora. Because, well, that's a euphemism for the church. What does it say, though? He's writing it 
to the 12 tribes. Even most of the New Testament was written to Israel. The book of Hebrews was written to the Hebrews. Romans is going to spend considerable time later explaining how this works. Ephesians has a whole bit explaining why, yes, Jews, you do need to accept those Gentiles after all. So the whole tone of the Bible, and then you get to Revelation, and it's all about Israel again. You don't see the churches except at the beginning and at the end. There's doctrinal reasons for that, but you get the point. The whole tone of the, New, of the Bible, Old and New Testament, is that God chose his people and through them he saved the world. It's not God chose his people, got what he needed from them, and then discarded them. And there are times throughout history, I'm not accusing anybody that I know of of this, where that doctrine has had much more of a racial undertone than anything else. We don't like Jews so maybe we should find what the Bible says to get rid of these Jews. God is doing a mysterious thing, it says, in including the Gentiles. There is absolutely still a plan for national Israel. And Paul will go out in Romans 9, 10, and 11 and spend a lot of time talking about this. But I'll just put it this way. Read, read about the covenant, yeah, in, in Genesis 17. Jeremiah 33, verse 20. The Lord said, if you could break my covenant with morning and evening, you can break my covenant with Israel. So there you go. It's called an everlasting covenant. Of course, if you don't take the Bible literally, you can make it mean whatever you want it to mean. But we do take it literally here. So this is important. Paul's trying to say what he does not mean. <laughs> they said, well, no, you see, they sinned. They were faithless. They broke their covenant. But does that mean that that nullifies the faithfulness of God to that same covenant? Of course not. Well, they were sinners. Well, yeah, so are you. What makes you think God's going to keep that new covenant with you if he, was, if he was willing to break that old covenant? So we as Christians, we love the Jews. We love the nation of Israel. Because these are God's people. You wait, just wait till we get to Romans 11. It's actually kind of funny the way he just talks about it. He's like, you Gentiles can just simmer down. You're lucky to be here. So don't think you're going to come and shoulder my people out of the way. However, let me give a, a quick point of application here that I've noticed. This does not mean that we have to have this almost magical view of Jews and Israel as Christians. Where if somebody's Jewish and somebody's Christian, the Jewish guy probably is right when it comes to the interpretation of Scripture. You know, yes, it's, it's odd what they're doing, but I mean, they're Jewish, so we should let them do it. I, I've even heard people that in the seminaries, they say, we've got to stop letting Gentiles interpret the Old Testament. That's that old postmodern wokeness coming into the seminaries is what that is. But listen, we, we love God's people, but the Old Testament is full of God's people getting it wrong and God showing them grace. We need to make sure that we stand on what the Word of God says and not allow, allow some sort of starry-eyed view of God's people. It's like the opposite problem. Where, no, you tell me, like, well, if this guy's only been saved for five years and he's got a lot of aberrant doctrine, it doesn't matter if he's Jewish. It matters what does the Word say. This is an important thing for us to know because we can fall into that. that you'll, you'll hear this sometimes where it's like, all right, we, this is what we believe the prophecies of the Bible mean. But let's get, a, let's get a Messianic Jew and see what they have to say. It's like, well, they may have a unique perspective, but they're not going to have some sort of unique revelation on Scripture that you, as a Christian full of the Holy Spirit, also have. You have been brought fully into God's family. We are not second-class citizens as Gentiles. That's an important thing to know.
The whole point of Romans chapter 2 was that while they are blessed, that does not excuse them from obedience. That's the whole point, isn't it? The covenant itself makes it clear. Read through Exodus. Read through Deuteronomy. The Lord's like, this is what I'm going to do for you if you obey me. But if you disobey me, here's a long list of curses coming your way. He says, I'm never going to let you go. I'll always bring you back in the end. But don't think that you can get away with living lawlessly and still claim to be under the law. The law and circumcision are not sufficient to save anybody. That's the point of chapter 2. Not that, well, we can be kind of finished with all these Jews after all. Nope, not the case. He's trying to bound those radical statements that he made before. So let's look at the rest of verse 4 here. He says, By no means let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. I want to look at just this verse for a minute because it's so good. This is a very important verse for us to know. He's saying, referring back to that faithlessness and that faithfulness. He's saying, are you saying that God is, God is somehow faithless? He says, no, let God be true, though every man a liar. What's the point? God is right, even if everyone on earth voted against him. Abraham Lincoln used to say that with his cabinet. They, they would make decisions for the war or for Reconstruction. And they would all say, no, Mr. President. And he'd say, well, seven no's and one eye, the eyes have it. It was a strong leader. He knew what he wanted done and he would execute it. It's the same thing with the Lord. You could say seven billion no's and one eye, the eyes have it. God himself is the majority, so to speak. Abraham said in Genesis 18, he said, Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? And he alludes to two Old Testament scriptures here. He says, Let God be true, though everyone were a liar. This is an allusion to Psalm 116, verse 11. and It's almost word for word in the Greek. You don't really see it so much in the English. But the psalmist is lamenting that everyone's a liar. Everyone around me is a liar. You ever feel that way? Everybody's just lying. So he says, since everyone is a liar, is a way you could translate that, God will be true. And then that quotation that you see in verse 4 is from Psalm 51, verse 4. That you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. Psalm 51 is David's confession of his sin with Bathsheba. When David did not go to battle when he should have gone to battle, and then he took his friend's wife into his house and committed adultery with her. When she was pregnant, he called his friend back, got him drunk and tried to get him to go and sleep with his wife so that no one would know. Finally ended up having his friend killed so that nobody would find out. Then taking that man's wife into his house so that it looked like David was the good guy. And you know the story. Nathan, the prophet, came in and judged him for that and said, you are the man. And that child was killed that was born of their union. The Lord judged them for that. That story is in 2 Samuel chapter 11. But in Psalm 51, David is saying, Lord, you're right to judge me. I'm wrong. Against you and you alone have I sinned. He says that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. He's saying, Lord, I, I don't have a prayer. I, I'm wrong. And all I can ask for is your mercy because you are a just judge. Do you see the point he's making here? Israel had been unfaithful to their covenant. Unfaithful. They had broken it. Most egregiously by crucifying the Messiah himself. 
But God himself is always faithful, Paul is saying. God will be true, even though all of you could break the covenant, and God is going to be true to the covenant. But there's a remarkable double-edged sword in this verse. God will be faithful to the covenant, and part of that covenant is restoring and saving his people. However, because God is always just, when he judges the unrighteous nation of Israel, despite their status, he's also being faithful to the covenant. This is what Paul is drawing out here. He's saying, you have sinned under the covenant, therefore you are under judgment. God would not have been faithful to the covenant or faithful to his own character if he allowed you to go unpunished. But God will eventually bring you back. He's not done with you, which is another demonstration of his faithfulness. God is right, whatever he does. Hope you can see that little pivot there. It's so important. Faithfulness. Oh, we hear that word and it's, oh, God is so faithful. Thank you, Lord. And you should feel that way. God's faithfulness is a good thing. But here's what you need to know. Faithfulness not always mean a positive thing for you. We say something like kindness. That's, that's always positive. There's no such thing as harsh kindness. You know what I mean? But faithfulness speaks of fulfilling your commitment no matter what. Faithfulness. So he's showing us in this verse, God is faithful to save and restore his people just like he promised, but he is also faithful to execute judgment on those people. He's keeping his end of the covenant, even though they had not. Which I think helps us shed some interpretive light on passages like 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 11 through 13. He says, This saying is trustworthy, for if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. Those are two positive things. You die with Christ, you'll live with Christ. You endure with Christ, you'll reign with Christ. Number three, if we deny him, he also will deny us. Woo! All right. Not so positive. And then we get number four. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. And we all hear that, and we love to quote that and say, Thank you, Jesus, for even though I'm faithless, you're faithful. Slow down. Faithful does not mean merciful and kind. Faithful means I will execute what is right. The first, he's got, he's got a set of four st- lines there in this little poetic section. If you die with him, you'll live with him. You endure with him, you'll reign with him. Positive. The next two are negative. If we deny him, he'll deny us. If we're faithless, he remains faithful. So will God be faithful to me, faithful to save me? No, no, no. What does he say? He cannot deny who? Himself. Do you think that God is going to allow you to sin violently and flagrantly and throw your salvation under the bus and trample on the blood of Jesus that he's going to somehow save you for that? That would be faithless to God's own character. And this is what we're seeing here. To be faithful means I will do what I have said, and in God's case especially, I will be who I am. God's faithfulness is to his covenant, but primarily it's to his own nature and character. And this is what these Jews were missing in in Romans 2. They were saying, well, we're Jews. We're under the covenant. We'll be saved. And Paul's like, no, God in his faithfulness will judge you for that. Saying the covenant's broken? He says, no, God's never going to break his covenant because he's faithful. But that doesn't excuse you from the punishment for those who break his covenant. 
faithfulness. God is always faithful to who he is. He cannot deny himself. He cannot allow flagrant sin and yet somehow, but it's okay, I'm saved. I was baptized so I can do whatever I want. I was circumcised, I can do whatever I want. That would be faithless to God's own justice and goodness. Socrates gave a man named Euthyphro a dilemma. You may have heard of Euthyphro's dilemma. He said it, I'll paraphrase it because it's kind of boring, but he puts it this way. He says, is something good because God said it's good? Or did God say that it was good because it was already good? Now that puts you in a very difficult place because if something is only good, if murder is only wrong because God said don't murder, then isn't morality arbitrary? And God could just as easily say that murder is right? Well, that doesn't quite feel right, does it? Well, what about the other option? God said don't murder because murdering is wrong, which means that God himself is obeying a standard, in which case we ask then, is he really God or is he just more powerful than us? This is what you call a false dilemma. If you've ever been in a logic class, a false dilemma is when somebody presents two options to you. Another thing politicians like to do, right? You have it this way or that way. There's no other options. And we go, I think there might be more than just these two options. You want the red team or the blue team? There's no two options. It's like, well, why not a third? Jesus was really good at this, wasn't he? Should we pay taxes to Caesar or not? A or B? I choose C. Here's the, here's the answer to that. Good is good if it is godly. Remember what the Lord told Moses his name was? He said, my name is I am. There was nothing else before God created the world. It's not like God was floating around in space. There was no space for God to float around in. There was only God. And then he created. And anything that came into that creation that was not like him is a virus in the program. It's cancer in the body of the world. It's not supposed to be there. That's what we call evil. So the question, can God do evil? It's a ridiculous question. Because God is good. And everything that is evil is less than and opposite of God. It's not, that, it's not the yin-yang symbol that you've seen where there's black and there's white and there's a little white and the black and a little black and the white. No, no, no. God is all good, which makes him just that much more fearful, I might say. So that's what God is faithful to more than anything else. He will do what is right. Therefore, God's not going to abandon the covenant. I promised you that I would bless your children, Abraham. But nor is he going to allow the unrighteous to escape, even in Israel. You can expect God to be utterly faithful to every word in that Bible you're holding. And we can be very good at selectively reading passages. Yes, Lord, I hold you to this promise in Jesus' name. This one, well, God, I thank you that you're kind and you're merciful and you'll probably skip over that one on Judgment Day. No, no, no. God is utterly faithful to his word. Let God be true and every man a liar, the Bible says. That doesn't seem right. Then you're wrong. That's the short answer. Well, everybody agrees that this is okay. God disagrees. Therefore, you're wrong. This is what Paul is saying here. It doesn't matter if every Jew in Israel was faithless. God will be faithful to that covenant. But also, God is faithful to the other terms of the covenant and to his own character that will not allow them to escape just because they were circumcised. Apply that to your own life.
Verses 5 through 8 now. This is a slippery, subtle, very 21st century argument in my opinion. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. Another one of those, it's a hypothetical situation, guys. Don't freak out on me, okay? Verse 6, there it is again. By no means. For then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie, God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. So Paul is asking, again, some rhetorical questions, speaking in a human way. So you can imagine Paul's taught this before in countless synagogues. And he knows what the objections are. He knows what people will say. And so he's going to go ahead and get ahead of the game and answer those questions, like a good preacher should. But he says, I'm speaking in a human way. So the question that we see in verse 5 and in verse 7, how can God judge my sin if my sin makes his holiness look good? That's the question. That when we sin, God's holiness shines brighter. Therefore, you could say, my sin glorifies God. So is God going to judge me for glorifying him through my sin? You feel how slippery that is? You probably find some philosopher out there somewhere that has said this. Now, it is true that it's like Isaiah chapter 6. When you see the Lord high and lifted up, all you can say is, Woe is me, for I am undone. I'm a man of unclean lips. I dwell in a people of unclean lips. And God's glory shines so much brighter. They'll say, Well, the light shines brightest in the dark. Therefore, let's turn off all the lights so that we can see the light nice and brightly. No way. That would mean that sin is good because sin glorifies God. In fact, this would, according to his argument here, make God unrighteous for pouring out his wrath. If some evil person did some evil thing, maybe he murdered somebody in a family, and through that, that family decided we need to get our lives right, and they became saved. Well, then God can't punish the murderer because they never would have gotten saved if it wasn't for him. That is so insidious, evil. Perhaps these Jews that Paul is, is arguing with here, they thought that, listen, our sin has made God's righteousness clear to the world. If we hadn't rejected the Lord and been scattered throughout the nations, God would never have been able to bring us back to our land and be glorified through all the world. Therefore, it was right for us to sin. Yes, we crucified the Lord Jesus, but didn't that result in the salvation of all men? So then how can God judge us for that? God would be wrong to judge us. This would lead to the false accusation of verse 8. You follow this line of thinking long enough, you get to the point where you say, therefore, you ought to sin as much as you can. Because God gives glory when you sin. It makes Him look good. It makes His grace look good. So sin as much as you can. And this is what he says that people were accusing him of teaching. Because Paul later on is going to lean into grace so heavy, it's going to make some of you uncomfortable. And people are saying, so you're just thinking we should just sin as much as we want because it makes God's grace look good? Paul says, if you are going to say that about me, your condemnation is just. Should Judas be credited with the cross? 
Now Judas, yeah, he betrayed our Lord, but that, that sacrifice led to salvation for all men. Well, I think Jesus answers that question for us, doesn't he? Mark 14, 21, Jesus said about the one who's going to betray him, he said it would be better for that man if he had never been born. How'd you like Jesus to say that about you? So we can go ahead and put a stop to that. This is important to know, and I'm not going to go off on a rabbit trail here, but just because something tracks logically doesn't make it right. Well, the argument's right there. It's, a, it's You're wrong. Jesus comes out and said it would be wrong for Judas to do that. And Paul agrees. This is our second by no means here. God is unrighteous to inflict wrath because my sin makes God get glorified. He goes, are you crazy? Who says that? Who would do that? That's as if to say there is no such thing as justice. Because if sin is good and good is good, you can't judge anybody. Therefore, there is no justice. Therefore, there is no right and wrong. And these arbitrary categories of good and evil we were talking about before mean nothing. Therefore, do whatever you want. Many times people want to stay at, the, at point one or two of their line of thinking and not follow it to the end. But the Bible is really good at taking us all the way to the end of our thinking. The ends do not justify the means. Yes, God will be glorified when he punishes sin and he throws Satan into hell and he establishes a new kingdom apart from sin. <laughs> but that does not excuse anybody who sinned. I've put, it, I've put it this way before. Well, someone's going to do it. It might as well be me. Don't let it be you. If it's going to happen anyway, you don't be the one with the blood on your hands. Many people will say that. The ends justify the means. It doesn't matter how I do it, as long as something good comes out of it. A lot, a lot of movie villains do this, don't they? Right? Thanos from the Avengers. I'm going to kill half the people in the whole world. That way there will be plenty of resources available for everybody. Very, you know, go green message from Thanos there. But, I mean, you watch this. You see this. It's all over the place. But the thing I always find remarkable is there's always some character in the movie going, I don't know. I think he might be right. Are you crazy? No, you don't do that. That's wrong. Killing lots of people would be wrong. And when we look at the world through this, this clinical lens, this clinical, like, mathematical lens, well, if we killed 50,000 people, then, you know, we, uh, the planet would be saved. That's what they were saying back in, like, the 80s and 90s. Did you know that? Population control. We've got to control the population because we have more people and the planet will die. And then they hit every benchmark and everything was fine. And you think, wow, it's a good thing we didn't kill a whole bunch of people, isn't it? Almost as if God knows what he's doing. But let's look at this in your own life. Do you think, well, I can, I can lie and cheat and bully at work because I'll make money and I can give the money to the church and give my family a good life. I'll teach them to do the right thing. You know that never works? No father who says, I'm going to do things the wrong way, but I'm going to yell at my children to do it the right way. That never works. Ever. Many dads try to farm church out to mom. Because they know the kids need to be in church, but it's not for me. Those kids are not seeing, oh, mom's taking us to church. They're seeing, dad doesn't go to church, especially the young men. They grow up and they say, well, it's not manly to go to church then. Or the young ladies grow up and they say, I need to find somebody to marry. I don't want to find some wimp who takes, goes to church like the ladies do. It doesn't work that way. It doesn't matter what you're doing. If it's sinful, stop. We looked at this last week with the 
the, uh, on Wednesday with the midwives who refused to kill the babies at Pharaoh's orders. Well, they're going to die anyway, but don't let you be the one to do it. Trust the Lord. Trust that God's way is better. You cannot sin your way to heaven and glory. Acts 17.31, the Lord says he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Assurance. How do you know God's going to judge the world? Because Jesus died and rose again. The cross is the ultimate display of God's faithfulness. That I will punish sin. That is, you ever doubt how God feels about sin? Maybe go home and watch The Passion of the Christ again. That's what sin deserves. So we don't play games with sin. God would not spare his own son if it would violate justice. This is what I've said many times. Those who clamor for justice in our society, I don't think they fully understand what justice means. Justice is a good thing, but justice is a hard taskmaster. Because if you make no room for mercy, you're going to end up in a very dark place. In fact, Paul calls this line of thinking, this line of thinking that says we should sin so that God will be glorified, blasphemous. Verse 8, where he says they slanderously charge us, that word is blasphemous. They blaspheme us. And their condemnation, their judgment is just. So there's two points that we've seen today. Number one, God is faithful to his covenant to Israel. And you can apply that to any promise God has made in Scripture. But there's another point, two sides of the same coin. God is also faithful to judge the unrighteous. The same faithfulness that calls God to never give up on his people is the same faithfulness that cries out for judgment. On that final day, no one's going to be able to smooth talk God into heaven. He is too good for that. You're not, again, it's not, it's not yin-yang. Where Yes, it's all, it's all white, but there's a little bit of black and there's a little bit of dark side to it. So I'm going to appeal to that. You can't do that with God. The Bible calls it inapproachable light when you speak to the Lord. He's too good. Which is why, to come back to what I said at the beginning, you must first know the fear of the Lord. That He is fearfully good and just and full of wrath and power. And it is wrath and power that are aimed at you if you have sinned. Which is all of you. That's the point of next week. Paul is telling these Jews who were panicking. They say, wait a minute, you're telling me that being a Jew won't save me? I thought God was faithful. He says, God is faithful. But he's also faithful to judge on righteousness. That doesn't seem right. Well, God is true even if every man is a liar. So you're saying that by my sin, I'm going to glorify God. Therefore, shouldn't I just sin as much as possible? Paul goes, you're lost if you think that. But here's the good news. That just as the cross was the greatest display of God's justice, it was also the greatest display of God's mercy and love. Why? Because Jesus Christ was the only one who did not deserve to be on that cross. He was a perfect sacrifice. He was the God-man that could take that penalty. He took all judgment and wrath at the cross. Psalm 75 talks about a cup 
full of wrath that God is going to force the wicked to drink down to the dregs. And in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus agreed to take that cup for the whole world. And that's what he did on that cross. And you say, why? Because God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. He loves you too much. God is good and God is just and he will not cleanse iniquity without a payment for it. But he looks at you and he loves you so much. He goes, what can I do to save them? Penalty must be poured out on my son to satisfy righteousness. Therefore, I'll do it. Amen. That's love and mercy. That, that you can think of it as the beams of the cross. It's the justice and the mercy of God meeting in the body and blood of Jesus Christ. Which is why that today, if you cry out to the Lord for forgiveness, you have a reasonable, sure hope that he will answer you and forgive you. Because Jesus not only died, but he rose from the dead. 1 John 1, 9 says that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He is faithful to that. He made a new covenant, a new promise in Christ Jesus, which is no more rules, just faith. If you cry out to the Lord, he will save you. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It's not the end, though. You start with the fear of the Lord, but you come to the place where you love the Lord. You start by recognizing that I am impossibly guilty. And you can, you can see this in, in men, uh, I think of Jordan Peterson, who talks a lot about God, talks a lot about the Bible. And there are some of these videos, you watch him talking about the Lord. He's not a believer. You can see him shaking and trembling and sweating as he talks about God because he's learning the fear of the Lord. And we pray that he makes his day one day to recognize that the fear of the Lord and the wrath of God were paid for him at the cross. Same is for you too. Fear the Lord. But let that fear drive you to say, Lord, I, all I can do is humble myself before you. And God says, good, because if you humble yourself before me, I will what? Lift you up. In Christ Jesus. But unless you understand that you are indisputably guilty before the judge, your pardon will mean very little to you. But he who is forgiven much loves much. Amen. 